0: I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. We all think we know success when we see it, but when it comes to being successful, how important is talent and ability really? When we actually use the word success, we really talk
1: about external recognition, about money, about following, about popularity. This is the piece that can be measured. The biggest difficulty we have is measuring performance. Performance is very, very difficult to measure, but success is
0: measurable. And later, the impact of age on achieving success. And why do so many great artists and scientists have their greatest breakthroughs in their 20s and 30s? Creativity
1: has no age. Your willingness to be creative has an age. Those people who are not willing to give up has just as much chance of breaking through later in their life as
0: breaking early in their life. The Laws and Nature of Success, with author and renowned network scientist Albert Laszlo Barabasi, that's coming up on Life Examined. While success in life isn't always easy to define, it is recognizable. In today's world, wealth, influence, and notoriety are some key indicators. But quite often, contrary to common belief, it's not those of us who are the most skilled, smartest, or the most talented who achieve success. Why is that? Why isn't hard work the key to getting ahead? Why doesn't ability and skill translate into a tangible result? In science and sports, success is pretty clear-cut discovering a vaccine, or beating your opponent. But in the arts and culture, success is a little murkier. I mean, why is one piece of modern art a masterpiece, or one actor's performance, better than the rest? So what are the rules for getting ahead? Is there a method to achieving success without being the best? Using big data and historic case studies, network scientist Albert Laszlo Barabashi takes a deep dive into the disconnect between performance and success, and provides a better understanding of what success really is. Albert Laszlo Barabashi is the Robert Gray Dodge Professor of Network Science at Northeastern University and a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. He's also the author of The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success. Albert Laszlo Barabashi, welcome to Life Examined.
1: Uh, Jonathan, it's a pleasure talking
0: to you. You're a fascinating person for a lot of reasons. And one reason I wanted to talk to you is because I love uh, reaching out to people that are able to bridge, I think, uh, a lot of big ideas. And I know that you began your life more in the arts, but kind of found yourself in the sciences. I I I wonder if you could talk to me just a little bit about some of your early interests and maybe how they took you into more of the realm that you're in now.
1: Sure. Uh, Uh, People know me as a network scientist, but uh, I was trained as a physicist. But before I I discovered physics, growing up in Transylvania, which does exist, Uh and it's not Pennsylvania, uh, uh, this is actually part of Romania, uh, my first love really was arts. Uh, I was hoping to become a sculptor. And... uh, as I was studying drawing and sculpting and everything, and I looked at the opportunities of uh, getting a degree in art, I realized the odds of me making it was very small, partly because this was during the Ceausescu's communism, and there were only about five spots in sculpting at the hmm. university. So I decided to, to take the easy way out and became
0: a nuclear physicist instead. <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm just curious, I mean, did you see any parallels or points of similarities between art and physics? I mean, there's some amazing early, I mean, Italian artists that loved looking at the, the similarities between, you know, shape and form and also the laws of physics and science.
1: Oh, I mean, traditionally, science and art were very, very close. Very few people realized that Leonardo all his life insisted that he's not an artist and he doesn't want to be an artist, but he's an engineer and a scientist. But in my mind, actually, the creative thinking in art and science are very, very similar or indistinguishable. At the end, you're always trying to find a new form, making a new new discovery. But the material in which you kind of do that is very, very different. And then scientists happen to have this nasty kind of constraint, which is called reality, right? That whatever you do, you need to match reality with it. Art, you have the complete freedom. You're not bound down by these earthy issues like uh, truth and reality.
0: Hmm. I love that. I, I I was just thinking of somebody I know well, who's an amazing musician, but also studies um, coral reefs and is a scientist. And he often said to me that I, it was only when I began to really study the reefs and come up with intricate experiments and ways of looking in them that I began to realize that I needed to bring a level of almost musical creativity in the way that I designed experiments or the ways in which I would try and synthesize data. And I... I, I I think we don't often give any credence to the idea that there is a, um, there's a creativity within the hard sciences that we often overlook. Oh, there's lots
1: of creativity. I mean, that really distinguishes the successful scientists from the less successful one is because science is not about problem solving. Most often the famous scientists that we respect and we look up are those, not those who solve the problem, but those who pose the problem and posing a problem that is discovering that this is the next issue to be addressed and solved is 99% of the creativity process. And that really requires a creative and not a technical juice.
0: Well, all of this circles a, an important topic that you're looking at, which is creativity, but but also really success. What, what are the things that we think of as successful or as important, and how does that distinguish from just, you know, a peak performance or just getting better at something? So for you, how did success and the kind of bigger ideas behind it begin to creep into some of your research? <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, uh, what professionally I do on a daily basis is what we call a network science, which is try to understand how things are connected around us. So my lab looks at how genes connect and how the breakdown of the gene connection leads to disease and how we cure that. But we also explore social networks, how people are connected, the Internet, how computers are connected and so on. And about a decade ago, we realized that maybe these tools should actually be brought to first scientific success. Because at the end, if you are a scientist, you don't work in isolation. I have collaborators, I have colleagues, and I have a community that I may not directly work with, but I read their work, I admire their work, and they influence my work. So we're part of a very complicated network that really sources the ideas towards us and then decides what do we next. So we said, now that we have all this data about what scientists published and so on, and we have network science, can we use networks to really infer what scientists could be more successful and who may not succeed? And so that was kind of the starting point. And as we started exploring success in science, we realized, wait a second, what does success mean to be more precise? That is how do we define success? And of course, in science, there are some measures of success, like how many citations you get, bid you with a Nobel Prize, and you know, like how do your colleagues look up to you and so on. But we wanted to make this measurable, that is very, very data-based. So we we went back to the drawing board and asked ourselves: how do we define success? And there we had the first surprise because we realized that. On a daily basis, we tend to think of performance and success to be interchangeable. That is, if you're good at something, you're going to be successful at that. And this is what we learn in school, right? Be good at math because then you're going to be a successful mathematician. Run fast and you're going to be a successful runner. Be good at playing the piano and you're going to be a successful musician. So there is a one-to-one correspondence between performance and success. But as we started to explore from the data perspective, we realized these are very, very different things. And the way I like to formulate it is that success isn't about you. It's about us. Or to be more precise, performance is about you and your success is about us. And let me unveil this. Performance is what you do. How fast you run, how good that you are solving math problems, how good you at running actually or uh, 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 showing the radio and so on. The things that you do on a daily basis. Success, however, is about how the community notices, perceives your work and whether that community rewards you for that. That is, performance is what you do, but success is what we do to you. And when we realized that, it kind of totally changed the perspective of how do we study success.
0: It's such an interesting topic because, as you said, I think we grow up lumping the idea of performance and success together. And I think we're all taught as kids, maybe in a very idealistic sense, that outside perception should have nothing to do with how we define success, right? Everything should just be about how one feels towards their performance or how one feels towards the things that they love. So why did you begin to think that there was more of this cultural or social element in success versus the distinction you made towards performance?
1: Well, I'm glad, Jonathan, you raised that, that that actually much of the society really for tells us, you know, you should feel good about yourself and, you know, be proud of what you do. And that is success. And I want to get it out of the way that that is one form of success. And it's a very valid success, you know. If you sleep in regularly and today you got up at 6 a.m., you'd say, that was a successful day, right? I managed to get up and get my things done, right? So there's lots of little satisfactions of success that are internal and they're very, very important. And many, many books written about success really focus on those. What I did with the formula, the book that you found, as well as in our research, is to say, let's focus on the form of success that we really normally call success, right? Which is really the external recognition. And depending on what you do, there are different measures of success. If you are a businessman, success is often measured by jobs you create or money you made, right? If you are an investor, it's clearly how much money you make. If you are uh, a scientist, what is your impact, which can be measured in many ways, like how many citations your work gets, how many other scientists are inspired by your work, and so on. If you are a rock star, how many people show up at your concerts, how uh, how many people listen to your songs, and so on. So when we actually use the word success, we really talk about external recognition, about money, about following, about popularity, about impact, about citations, and so on. And this is the piece that can be measured. And what is interesting, what we realize is that the biggest difficulty we have is measuring performance. Performance is very, very difficult to measure, but success is measurable because it's external. And it's interesting, what do I mean that performance is not measurable? Of course, we can easily distinguish a good musician from a bad one. We can easily distinguish a fast runner from a slow runner. What happens is that in most areas, we cannot distinguish two individuals who are good at what they do. It's very difficult to tell between two musicians who is the better one. And actually, for that reason, as I talk in the formula, many, many competitions fail at identifying who is the best performer, partly because there is no such a thing. And, and so what we find is that, you know, who is the best teacher? How do you distinguish two very good teachers from each other? How do you distinguish two very good doctors from each other? So in most areas that really matter for us, performance is not that it's not measurable, but once you're good at something, you're as good as the other one. And, and the question is, how does performance determine success? when you have multiple individuals who are indistinguishable in their performance, yet some are superstars and others never
0: noticed. So this then, I think, gets to the question of how you have formulated why it is that two people that are, let's say, relatively talented in, in the same field, why it is that one of them might achieve this kind of externalized success is that correct so maybe you can walk us through some of those findings sure
1: sure and i, I think it's important to us to say how we did it right and the way we did it is that we ended up studying the full scientific literature every single research paper written from 1900 today we reconstructed every scientist's full career from the very first paper to the last one that they wrote and the impact of their work, their collaborators and so on, but not only in science, we did that also in art. We rebuilt for half a million artists their exhibition history and 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 tried to understand how their exhibition in certain institutions led to their potential success. We looked at their sales values and so on. So everything that you find actually in my book and in my research is data-driven and and what I try to do in the book is to actually say there is not a single law of success. There's not a single reason why somebody will be more successful for the than the other one. But there are several that apply under different circumstances. And the first law that I actually formulate in the book is that performance drives success. But when performance is not measurable, then networks determine success. And what do I mean by that? Well... If you are a runner, if you, uh, a chronometer will decide how good you are. And there is no ambiguity who is the fastest person. We have competitions, and we can decide who this year is the fastest individual on earth. So that's one of those areas where performance is accurately measurable and uniquely determines success. There's nothing else as a source of success in that area. But what about arts, where we don't have a chronometer? You know, I have a, a coffee mug in front of me and the question is that, is this an artwork or it's a pure coffee mug? Well, it depends where you see it, right? If you see it in MoMA or another prestigious museum under a glass bowl, right? It's an artwork. And what makes the same coffee mug an artwork? Well, if the question is, who is the artist whose name is put underneath? What did this artist exhibit and where before? How does this mug connect to art history and that particular artist's work? That is, the reason why that mug may have a value as an artwork has nothing to do with the mug itself, with the object itself, but it has to do with lots of connections that the piece has and the creator to art history in general. That is, without knowing these connections, without understanding the network in which that object exists, that mug is a mug and it's worthless as an artwork. So art, for me, is a beautiful example where where performance is impossible to measure, particularly in contemporary art and hence the value is really created by the network. And in case of art, actually, one of the things I show in the book, that the value is created by how the artist engages with the institutional network. That is where the artist exhibited first, second, and third time. And based on where you were exhibited, what other institutions you will have access to. That is how you can actually travel in this institutional network. So back to the first law, right? If performance is measurable in what you do, that uniquely determines success, but that is only true in sports and maybe in some areas of investments, right? But in mo- for most of us, from teachers to doctors to radio hosts, Performance does not have a chronometer. And there are many people who are just as good we are, and in that case, networks matter.
0: You know what I think of immediately, and because I I spend so much time in Southern California, KCRW is located in Los Angeles. This is the home of the entertainment field. So a city that's very full of actors. And I've often wondered, what's the actual range of talent among the actors? I mean, clearly there are geniuses out there, and clearly there are some that are also just extremely good looking or whatever. I mean, it's just probably all sorts of talent out there. But it's almost to no surprise that oftentimes the actors that make it out had some very, very important family connections, or their parents were actors, or they had a very... A significant network that lifted them out of a pool, which is just as you say, it's hard to distinguish perhaps between all of the talent in a very large city or population, right? So that's another that's right. example in which we see a network being a prime driver of success.
1: Absolutely. And not only those networks, but also chance, right, of how you engage with that particular network. Uh, so you are pointing exactly at the classical case of cultural markets. Cultural markets from Hollywood to music industry to book writing and all of that is an area where there's lots of talent and there are only few superstars, right? And the, the, always the question is, how did the community select that superstar? How did it become that superstar? And when you look into that, you find all of those reasons that you described and you realize there were 25 other people next to that superstar who could have been just as successful as that person that became, but they were lacking one or two elements in the network that would have guided them over there.
0: What's the role of just pure chance or luck in how we understand success. I mean, there was that old famous uh, idea in any field like, oh, you need to have talent, but you also need you need to get a break. You need to catch a break. Um, Do you think that's true?
1: Oh, luck has a very, very important role, but not the way people think, right? It's not that you're going to win the lottery. Uh, what I often say, and there's even a saying, right, is that, uh, that luck only prefers the one who is prepared to take advantage of that right? And, and so, so this is where the misconception is that it's only luck. It's never luck, right? Because, I mean, I, I like to always quote Fleming who, uh, who developed penicillin uh, by observing that in, a, in one of his experiments failed and, uh, and the, the cells were killed, the bacteria was killed because fungi kind of grew over the experiment. And he was not the first person to have a failed experiment, that is that uh, some, uh, some fungi invaded his experiment. He was the first to notice that there is a cure there, right? So, so the question is, yes, chance happens a lot with us, but are you able to take advantage? And that's where performance matters. And this, I'm not here to tell you that performance is not important when it comes to success. You know, I didn't say that if you read the formula, you understand the laws of success. Without performance, you could become successful. What I'm trying to tell you here is that there are quite a number of people who are just as good as what they do as you are. And then the question is, who among yourself will actually be the one that the community will appreciate? And that's when the laws of success come in.
0: Well, run us through a few more. I mean, you've talked about networks. We've talked a little bit about luck. But, but let's keep moving through some of the important findings.
1: Sure. I mean, there are quite a number of them, right? The, the second law explicitly says performance is bounded, but success is unbounded. And what do we mean by that? Performance is bounded is back to the fact that, you know, even when you look at people who are best at what they do, they're not significantly better than the one who is kind of next in line. And let's consider even the runners, right? Usain Bolt for many years was the fastest man on earth, he may still be, right? But when he wins a competition, he does so with a fraction of a second. So he's not... and and you know, I'm a very poor runner and he's not not running 10 times faster than I do, right? So when you, even when you look actually at performance of running, you find that it's very bounded. You don't have anybody who runs 10,000 times faster than, than the next person in line. And what is true for runners is true for any area where we can measure performance. But success is not bounded. And my best example often I use is that when my second book came out, uh, uh, Bursts, I remember I was in New York City and I was with my publisher and we were looking uh, who who is the competition, right? And and so you look at the at that time you know the paper version of the New York Times, and uh, and uh, the number one was actually uh, well number two with more than hundred thousand copies uh, sold uh, was the last song. Uh, which was a, uh, uh, by Fraser, and it was a huge book, right? And when you sell a, in a week 200,000 copies, that's huge, right? You could actually become the number one bestseller in the New York Times by selling 30,000 copies and often with 10,000. So, uh, at that week, he sold 200,000 copies, and he was still number two. Why is that? Because the same weekend, Dan Brown book came out, and that sold 1.2 million copies. So... So now, is Dan Brown 10 times better writer than Fraser? How do you decide, (laughs) right? But the success measure can be 10 and 100 times bigger, right? So, this is what we say the tiny differences in the performance because of this collective effect of the community can grow up and become orders of magnitude difference in success. So, that reason, performance is bounded. You cannot increase your performance a hundred times, but success is unbounded. If you engage your network right, you know, the, the reward you get for the tiny difference in performance could be huge.
0: And this is Life Examined on KCRW, and my guest this hour is Albert Laszlo Barbashi. He's the author of The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success. We'll be back with part two of our interview after this short break. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW, and also back with my guest this hour, Albert Laszlo Barabashi. He's the author of The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success in which he uses big data to help reveal some of the patterns and rules as to why some people excel in today's society. Let's jump back into the conversation. I'd love any stories that you have in the book or anecdotes about maybe someone who was able to break through, and it reflects on a number of the the laws that you discovered. Oh, yes. I mean,
1: of course, uh, uh, there are quite a number of anecdotes, and that's what really made the book really uh, fun for me. Uh, but uh, the question is, where do we start, right? And uh, and uh, my favorite example is actually the uh, the art space, uh, which is uh, in the nineteen seventies. There was actually a very successful uh, uh, graffiti artist group called Samo, and Samuel was working in New York and was kind of covering many of the walls <laughs> in New York City, as you can imagine, and. Uh, and what was little known, actually, is that it was really two artists behind that. It was a collaboration of two high school students. And, and what is interesting is that one of them, everybody, every, still everybody knows. One of them was actually uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. But does anybody actually use, uh, know who is the other artist? And the other artist is still alive. His name is Al Aldi, Diaz, and he still uh, is, a, is a, you know, somewhat known but not too well-known artist in, uh, uh, in New York City. So we have two kids who start together their art. They actually do it together they, uh, under one pseudonym. And then within three years, one of them becomes eventually the best-selling artist that is out there, you know, which is Basquiat, and the other one who is still alive, still unknown to most of, even to the art world. And how do these differences really matter? And there are many examples, which we call them twin studies like that, right, in the world, where you have people with virtually indistinguishable skill set, and one of them takes off and the other one vanishes. And that is really kind of the interesting challenge that we have when we try to understand uh, uh, success: is that what's different between Aldiaz and uh, uh, and uh, Basqueat? And, and the answer is very clear. I actually happen to know Aldiaz. I happened to met him, and he's a very nice, very quiet fellow. In contrast, Basqueat was a born networker, right? He. As soon as they started to enter the artwork together with his friend Al Diaz, who introduced him to the artwork, Right, he started to reach out to all the famous art uh, artists. He went up actually to Warhol uh, and to many others and befriended them and entered very aggressively that social circle that the top artists were kind of part of in New York City. and. The work, what he did actually as an artist, was very similar to what he did as a graffiti artist. So performance-wise, there was no difference, but through the help of his friends and by putting everything on canvas, rather than doing it in a wall, he kind of entered a different stratosphere. And no matter what area you look at it, you find artists who actually, uh, well, you find examples of individuals that one of them hugely successful, other one unknown, even though the work is indistinguishable. We did that the same for science, actually. We, one of my uh, labs research project focuses on geniuses. That is, who are the individuals that we label genius? And so for that reason, we ended up kind of searching in like who is called genius, that whom do we normally label? And then we started to look at the performance, particularly among scientists. What was their scientific impact of the people that we call genius? And how did they compare actually, how did they compare to the others? And what we found is that for most individuals in science who are labeled geniuses, are what we call ordinary genius. That is that you will find in the same era, in the same field, somebody else who has a comparable or often better scientific performance. And so then the question is, why did X became a genius when Y actually is unnoticed? And and a good example is Stephen Hawking. So Stephen Hawking obviously has done some very important work on black holes right but when we look at the science that he has done it turns out there are about 6 individuals who had equally or bigger impact in the same area at the same time yet they didn't have the life story the personal story that he did and 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 so so often these differences that had little to do with the performance for why the individual is known for propagate them to be visible and be labeled the genius in the society. And what I try to do in the book, in the formula, as well as in our research, is to try to understand these differences and try to understand these paths that take one person out and turn them into this genius, into this superhero, and leave the others behind. And most important, could we actually engineer these forces to help us if we have the performance?
0: Yeah, and I think this gets to the this question, which is that, you know, can you be a genius or can you be successful in a vacuum? Like, can you be the novelist that is hides away in a cabin and just submits a book, but is, is not necessarily a self-promoter or a networker? And that was a story I think we used to hear, but I don't think it's one we hear that much anymore.
1: So it's very interesting that you raise this question about uh, really, the, you know, the, the isolated genius that he or she who just there, does their work and then we will discover it. And all the data indicates that's a myth. And this is not that it doesn't exist. We do have Van Goghs and we have a few individuals who really were unappreciated at the time when they were doing their work and later we discovered them. But actually this is something that scientists have done. They have taken the encyclopedia and looked at everybody we remember today and asked Cara, asked themselves, what fraction of those individuals that we appreciate from the past were not appreciated by the society they were part of? And it's 1% or less. It's a very, very tiny fraction. If you think about Leonardo, if you think about uh, Beethoven, if you think about Einstein, if you think about just about anybody that comes to your mind, they were superstars at their own era in whatever superstar meant at that moment right and and so they got from the society everything that was possible to get given what they were doing and there are of course a few individuals for which this is not true and of course all the movies are made about them because there are better stories so we have this cognitive bias And this is very hurtful for many people, actually, particularly in art. Many artist friends of mine have that attitude. All I have to do is do my job and the society will discover it of how great I am. And that's not the way it works, sadly, right? Yes, of course, it may happen, but I would not bank on it based on the data.
0: And there's some feeling of depression that comes over me as I wonder, and maybe I'm simplifying this too much, Which is that, does a lot of this just have to do with privilege and connections? Uh, Does a lot of it have to do with, you know, being lifted into the right institutions by the family you come from so you have access to, you know, these greater people that wield cultural power? Um, Or is it just hard work and personality and the, you know, like... What's really happening here? Because I'm scared to think that there's just this big kind of privileged aspect at play in terms of how one becomes a genius or is successful.
1: Privilege does matter, of course, but privilege acts in many different ways. So we did a wonderful study actually several years ago that we looked at the, uh, the birth and the death place of everybody that we remember from history for the last 2,000 years. And what you realize that particularly the more you go back in time, virtually everybody that matters for us from that age were born and certainly died in cultural centers. And and because simply not because there were no talented people outside of the cultural centers, but they did not have the opportunity to develop their talent. So what I wanna say is that yes, it is privilege. Is it privilege that you were born in Athens 2000 years ago? I would even say it's also chance, right? Were there better uh, uh, people who kind of would have been better at philosophy than Aristotle and others? And in China? Probably, right? Or in North America? Probably, right? But they never got the chance to actually exercise that particular profession to become a philosopher. So it's more than privilege, right? It's, It's being born at the right time and being able to kind of resonate with that time. And the way I like to think about it is that Yes, talent is very important, and and an ability to develop a talent is very important, right? And for that, you have to be in the right place at the right time. And, And for the vast majority of humanity, this was never given throughout the history. But it's not enough. Right, In the sense that you also have to have an attitude to engage with the community you're a part of. And this means the professional community, right? That if you are a painter, you have to engage with galleries and institutions or whoever in your time is actually the relevant force that would recognize you as a painter. If you are a scientist, you cannot just uh, decide to live in a cabin up in the mountain and do your math or your physics. You have to be part of the community. Why? because if you are isolated you're often not asking the right questions you're not you don't understand what is the advance whether that advance is in music whether that advance is in science whether that advance uh, in any other creative area so you need to have you know you need to have an education masters to tell you this is where we are this is the boundary of knowledge so that you can build on that and take it to the next level you see, I'm also a big believer that big discoveries and advances don't happen because geniuses come along and they make us do it, but because the time is right for that. And once the time is right for that, many individuals would come along and, and make that discovery, make that next step. So, you know, there, there's a reason why there wasn't Cubism before the kind of early next century, right? Why it wasn't called Cubism in 1500? because the artwork could not do cubism at that time. It was not meaningful. It hasn't developed at that stage, right? There was no impressionism either. For, For us to have impressionism, we first to have had photography. And Bain thought there's no more reason to become realistic as an artist, right? Because the photograph can do better than you can do as an artist. So what's next? And that's, that's the moment when impressionism came. So, so for, for you to make an advance that really matters, no matter in what area you are, you need to be very in tuned of where the, where the boundary of knowledge is. And is that the privilege that you are in and you are in the right community to kind of uh, have that sense? Perhaps it is. You have to be born at the right place at the right time and get the right education. So in that sense, it's all about privilege, but it's not enough, right? you also have to engage with that community.
0: Well, it makes me then think how much the internet has on some level changed or disrupted some of this stuff because suddenly, you know, we're all working everywhere and from any place. And uh, and then my mind goes to, you know, those that get ahead tend to be the biggest self-promoters on places like social media or Instagram or whatever it is um those that post the most i don't think are generally the smartest or best in their field but they somehow have become the arbiter of culture and ideas simply because they've learned to master the ability to communicate through these various channels which seems now to have less to do with one's location like you don't have to be a painter in new york or whatever but that things are changing don't you think and that i i don't like all of this change personally maybe is the luddite in me is speaking right now but i but i uh, i do think about this quite a bit it's, this is the world we live in now
1: well certainly and then of course uh, you and i kind of tend to have give too much importance to this social media fame and i i also i tend to think often however that it doesn't matter right it is a momentarily thing and, and it's very important, right? Because it can bring cash on the, uh, uh, through the door, right? And can achieve certain things, can open doors and so on. But you always have to kind of ask yourself, what, what is your goal in life? And whether you have, you're looking for a short-term impact or long-term impact. And in that sense, the the what the social media is bringing along, it gives you a short, short-term impact. In the moment you stop doing what you're doing, it's gone, right? and very little is left behind. But yes, the internet does change things. And what the internet did change is that it really brought globalization of ideas, whether it's good or bad. (laughs) But certainly, certainly kind of like now, any idea that comes up anywhere on the earth, like within hours or certainly days or weeks, could reach anywhere else if it's worthwhile. But does that mean now that that really you have access to all of these anywhere in the world. Let me give an example. I always thought that when internet came along, places like Harvard where I have an appointment, right, or Northeastern or big universities will lose their value because anybody on the earth, right, can actually get access to the same material that I'm teaching in my classes and, and could learn and make progress. Yet, oddly, since the internet came along, these big universities, these places of learning became even more competitive and more important. And why is that? Well, because learning and preparing for success, whatever your measure of success is, so i bit get hanged up on what success is, is not only about knowledge, it's also about how you use your knowledge and what is the cutting edge. And the reason why kids come to Harvard and Northeastern and the top universities to work with me is not to actually get knowledge. I'm not teaching them knowledge. They already have the knowledge when they come to my lab. I'm teaching them how to think and how to use that. And what's the border of knowledge and what's the next step for them. And, and so at the end, that apprenticeship became even more important in the era where information has no value because it's accessible to everyone. And when everything is accessible to everyone, what is that you focus on? That's where the value is. So in a way, the internet, yes, it democratized knowledge, but it even highlighted even more the importance of being at the right place at the right time to understand how do you use that knowledge.
0: I I agree, but I I think there's a cynical part of me that says why did Harvard become more important is because of credentialism. It's because of maybe as the internet became more democratizing uh, that these centers of power that still held power became more powerful and that we need these things still to advance our lives. And I mean, I, I, I take it that there may be people there accruing wisdom, but I think it's still a stamp of how one advances their ideas or causes in this world.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I have a chapter in the book about that, right? Uh, the, the Grand Slams and College Diplomas, right? Where I actually recall my son's example, who was hoping to get in Harvard and did not, and how heartbroken he was, right? And then uh, and, and there's lots of research to show that, you know, when it comes to long-term success, Harvard only helps a certain group of people, those who come from very dis- uh, uh, disadvantaged families. Most people who go to Harvard are actually not helped by Harvard. And actually, there's a beautiful study that I recall in the book which shows that people who applied to prominent universities like Harvard, whether they got admitted or not, whether they got admitted and they did not go there or they didn't get admitted, in the long term, they made just as much money and they were just as successful as those people who actually graduated from Harvard. And it's a very odd thing. Is why is that right? Of course, controlling for grades in high school and uh, you know effectively anything that we can do for performance. And what it actually shows is that when somebody decides to apply to Harvard, he or she thinks that I belong there. And even if Harvard doesn't think that you belong there, you have the drive right to believe that you are drive right there, and you will do just as well as a Harvard student. And, and at the end, why is Harvard still a good university and MIT and Stanford, let's not single out the one or the other places, is because they still get the best students in the country or in the world, right? So it's a self-perpetuating, not only as offering credentials, but offering a stamp of approval because to get in, you have to be very good at what you get. And I often say, listen, we at Harvard or middle system don't teach any differently, right? It's just the material of students we get is very different.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I do want to touch on this connection between age and success. Um, you, You talk about this in a lot of different interesting ways, how, for example, um, a lot of the great scientists and mathematicians were making their big discoveries in the twen- in their twenties or um, and then how that might change throughout one's life and whether that's still possible or not as one gets uh, into more advanced ages so will you tell us a little bit about that
1: Sure I mean this is actually a a really interesting story because i this was partly driven by my own interests right i mean it's it's a quick look of quick look at the, my Wikipedia page will show that I'm past 50, right? I'm uh, almost 55 now, and and the big question that comes up is that am I being a scientist? Can I be still creative? And there are very important kind of forces today say us no. For example, Einstein made this very fa- uh, famous statement that if a physicist and I'm a physicist, right? Doesn't make his or her big discovery by the, by his thirties, he will never do so. And of course, the question is, why did he say that? And one of the reasons he said that is because he looked at everybody around himself. Most of people were involved in the nineteen twenties and thirties in quantum mechanics, and he saw kids in their twenties or early thirties when they made their big discovery. So, one, so I was very curious, should I really give up science, right? Because in mid-50s, I cannot be creative. It's time for me to do something completely different. So we started to explore whether is this only true for the quantum mechanics Nobel Prize winners, or is it true in general that scientists actually tend to be more creative early in their career? And for that, we analyzed again, like millions of scientists' career, and what and kind of trying to find out do you write your highest impact paper early or later in the career and to make a long story short the answer is totally random that is that if you put the papers that you write because your product as a scientist are research papers in the order one to n first to the last one it's totally random whether it's your first or your last paper is going to be the most impactful one and what it actually but what is not random is productivity That is, scientists do tend to write most of their papers early in their career, and productivity decreases later on their career, partly because they start work doing administration, they get sick, they have family responsibilities, and so on and so forth. So, because it's it's a little bit like a lottery ticket. Imagine that, you know, every paper is a lottery ticket, and the question is, will you win or not? And if you actually buy regularly every year lottery tickets, it's totally random when you're going a win. However, when you buy most of your tickets in the first 10 years of your life and you stop buying it later, it will look like that only young people can win lottery, right? And that's what happened in science as well. So what the data clearly indicated is that creativity is totally independent of age, productivity is not, Hence, those scientists who keep up their productivity have the same chance later in their life to make their biggest discovery, the same chance as being early in their life. And I have two examples in the book. Uh, one is, for example, Frank Wilczek, who got a few years ago the Nobel Prize in Physics for the very, very first research paper he wrote as a graduate student. But the, my favorite example is not him, but John flan John Flann is a chemist who at 60 or 65, he was forcefully retired from Yale University and they closed his lab down. And then he moved to Virginia Commonwealth University, where he made discovery after retirement that 15 years later got him the Chemistry Nobel Prize. And John Flynn actually passed away a few years ago, uh, sadly, uh, and he was 93. And a few weeks before he passed away, he was still working in the lab. so. What these results have shown us, and then we ended up validating this in many different areas, is that creativity has no age. Your willingness to be creative has an age. That is your willingness to try again and again. And those people who are not willing to give up has just as much chance of breaking through later in their life as breaking early in their life.
0: I, I think that's so interesting. I mean, and it, and I think it very clearly shows up I mean, I'm more in touch with the arts, I think, than the sciences, but you see this in writers or particularly musicians uh, that, uh, just as you mentioned, that don't yet have families or mortgages or other things to attend to so they can attend to their art. And that's why we see so much success for musicians in their 20s or early 30s, because guess what? The rest of life takes up a lot of time when you take it on. And that, yeah, productivity drops. I I, I think it's it, now that you say it, it makes total sense. But I hadn't quite pieced it together like that. So yeah,
1: and it's not only music. Even even you know, like uh, uh, creativity and youth are deeply connected when it comes to the Silicon Valley. Right. The the ethos is that you have to be in your twenties to form your next Google or Facebook or you name it. Yet some of the colleagues from Northwestern University actually looked at what is the age of a company's funder uh, and whether the company will be successful or not. And what they found that a company founded by somebody in his 50s are twice as likely to have a successful exit than one for a funded in his 30s. So it's the same story as the lonely genius, the Van Gogh, right? We love the young entrepreneur story, right? So we end tend up actually to overemphasize and tell many stories about it. But when you look at the wealth created in the United States, in Silicon Valley, otherwise, that there is no age bias per se, right? Uh, there are just as successful companies created by people in their 50s and 60s as those in their 20s. They're just not such a good story any longer.
0: Well, and I think this is an important... Uh... Point that you're making because if we were, uh, there's something in the idea that scientists make their discoveries in their 20s or great books are written in people in their 20s or 30s that suggests that maybe one's brain or access to creativity is most alive in that period, which then suggests as we grow older, our brains begin to kind of ossify or we lose the ability for creativity. Um, or you know the, the neuroscience would maybe tell us that's true or not true, but but I think what you're telling me is a more optimistic or hopeful story, which is that you can be creative at any age. But you part of it is just you have to be productive. You have to keep doing the work to to get there. Yes,
1: we can even measure that. It's not only that you can be; you are creative at any age if you're willing to engage with it. Right. In case of science, we were able to explicitly measure. As I talk in the formula, we have what we call a Q factor. A Q factor is a scientist's ability to take a random idea and turn it into a high-impact or a low-impact discovery. And this is something that we can measure throughout the career of individuals. And I really thought that my ability to turn an idea into something impactful has really improved uh, uh, as I grew as a scientist, right? Because I learned what matters and what doesn't, right? Uh, And clearly now in my 50s, I'm so much better at formulating an idea, picking a good idea, and as well as turning into a good scientific product. And I was dead wrong. Turns out this Q factor that tells you how good you are into turning a random idea into a big discovery is totally independent of age. That is, I'm just as good now as I was when in my 20s I wrote my very first papers. And, and, and this is one of the cases where we can explicitly measure something that could be very deeply connected with what we often call creativity. And I'm totally a big believer that this myth that the society perpetuates that youth equals creativity is not only wrong, but it's also hurtful, right? Because we are discouraging the vast majority of the population from trying to be creative because they don't belong to the creative club. Well, they do because creativity has no age. Mm -hmm.
0: My guest this hour has been Albert Laszlo Barabashi, author of The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success. Albert, thank you so much for the time in this conversation.
1: Jonathan, we planned 20 minutes. It became
0: almost an hour. It was fun. All right. That's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. And now we'd love to hear from you. Do you believe that success has less to do with talent and more to do with networking? Join us on our Facebook page and chime in where we're trying to get to a thousand members as soon as possible. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.